Good morning, everybody. Uh, the children are dismissed for Children's Church. Insert joke about how many children we have in this church. I ran out of them, so I don't know. Okay, David's got one. Tune in next week. Okay. Uh, today we're going to continue our study in the book of Acts. We'll be in Acts chapter 18, verses 18 through 28. Uh, Acts chapter 18, verses 18 through 28. And that reads, starting in verse 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer, and then took leave of the brothers, and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. As sin prayed, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow, and they came to Ephesus. And he left them there, but he himself went to the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church, and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he only knew the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in a synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. He arrived and greatly helped uh, those who through grace had believed and powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Heavenly Father, um, today, in this place, Lord, uh, I need you. We need you, Lord. We need you to meet us here. We are thankful that your grace is poured out unconditionally, but Lord, beyond unconditionally, your grace is poured out despite our condition, despite what we've brought to this place, despite the baggage, the sin, the heartache. Lord, I pray that you would you would lead us to, to rejoicing, Lord. You would lead us to a deeper understanding of your word, a deeper understanding of you, Lord, an all-inspiring understanding of you. Lord, I pray that you are with me today as I speak and with our congrega congregation today as, as they listen, as their heart is open to your wisdom, Lord. I pray that you move in a way where only you can be credited for. And Lord, I pray that, that you just do the things you do every day continually. We love you. We pray these things in the holy and precious name of your son. Amen. Alright, so I missed my traditional introduction. Uh, introduction. I apologize about that. For those of you who don't know, my name is Joey Sedlock. I am a member of Sulphur Community Church here. Uh, if it is your first time here, we are glad that you are here. We hope that you uh, continue to come here and, and allow us to, to love you and bring you into community with us. As I said, we are in Acts chapter 18, as we continue our study through the book, we've got about 10 chapters left, uh, but here 
We have we have an interesting passage um, that really flows well with how Luke has moved through this book so far. In chapter one, we we saw Jesus before he sends into heaven. He gives us a promise, and he promises the disciples that that they would receive power through the Holy Spirit. They would speak boldly in His name, but also that the gospel would be taken to the ends of the earth. And we know that happened, right? Because we're here. And Sulphur, Louisiana is very far from Jerusalem. So we know that happened, but, but the book of Acts seeks to give us a story of how that happened. How the gospel spread through Jerusalem before ultimately breaking its walls and getting out to the surrounding areas. We get this view from Luke many times from like a 30,000 foot view, right? Where he just says, the gospel moved throughout this whole area. Uh, the Lord added numbers to their day, uh, added numbers to their, their meetings day by day, where thousands are being saved and all the, the disciples are being encouraged. But also Luke zooms in and he gets on the ground with us. He takes a trip down here and he gives us these intimate stories. He gives us Stephen's entire speech before he is martyred. And, and uh, the believers flee out of Jerusalem, right? We get those intimate moments with, with Peter and Cornelius, where Cornelius learns that the gospel is for him, a Gentile. As a matter of fact, the gospel is for all people of all nations, right? We get those intimate moments. And in our text today, we have a mixture of the two. We have, we have this flyover of Paul's ending his second missionary journey and even beginning his third missionary journey. And then we get this intimate moment with Apollos. And through these intimate moments, I think we learn something each and every time. And so let's go ahead and get started and see what Apollos has for us today, or what Luke has for us ultimately. And so first, we have Paul. And Paul is, it says that after this, uh, he stayed many days longer and took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. This is coming right off of what Trent uh, went through last week, where he is staying in Corinth, where, where the Lord tells him, that I'm not going to let anybody hurt you here. Take your time. I have people in this city. They need to be reached. That's, that's got to be pretty restful for Paul, who has been beaten, uh, who has been not quite shipwrecked yet, but has, has suffered a lot at the hands of those he's trying to convert. And so after many days longer, he stays longer past that point, he finally leaves, and he sets sail for Syria. And it says, with him, Priscilla and Aquila. We met them in early chapter 18. Priscilla and Aquila were a married couple who had sat under Paul's teaching in Corinth. And so he decides to actually take them with him. And so it says, at Sincre, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. Now this vow, scholars have spent a lot of time trying to figure out specifically what kind of vow, for what kind of purpose. And at the end of the day, we just don't know. There is a Nazarite vow that doesn't allow you to cut your hair. We saw that with Samson in the Old Testament. But those vows were not typically taken outside of Jerusalem. So it's doubtful that it was that. But what we, what we can say with some certainty is that whatever, this, whatever the specifics of this vow were, it was a vow for thankfulness. A special time where at least we know that he agreed to not cut his hair as some sort of... Uh, Asking a blessing from God, a thankfulness for this time of rest that he has experienced in Corinth. And so once he leaves Corinth, he cuts his hair. And the reason for that is, he is saying, that special time, it's come to an end. It's time for me to move on. A time for me to move on to a place where maybe I won't be protected as I was in Corinth 
and that's okay. And as we read through the, the rest of the book of Acts, we'll, we'll realize that no, he, he won't be protected once he moves out of Corinth. And so he goes to Sindre, uh, and that was a port that would just allow him to get to Ephesus. And in verse 19, that's what we see. And it says, and they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. Now that's Paul leaving Priscilla and Aquila. And Paul goes into the synagogues to reason with the Jews. Verse 20. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And Paul set sail from Ephesus. Now that if God wills, in, in our culture, that's kind of a tagline. Uh, in other parts of the world, it isn't. It's a very serious thing. But in our culture, it kind of is, you know, if the Lord wills. But what's really interesting about Paul saying this, a few chapters after he attempted to come this way before, is that the Lord literally did not let him come this way. If you remember from chapter 16, he tried to go into Asia and preach the word there, and the Holy Spirit prevented him. So he took the long way around and went all the way to Macedonia. But here he is saying, hey, I'll come back if the Lord wills. And that's interesting because last time the Lord didn't will it. So he's like, I don't know if the Lord's going to allow me to come back. I came here as a temporary stop to get back to Antioch. All of his journey began and end at Antioch. And of course, Antioch is the central place of Christianity outside of Jerusalem. And so he sets sail from Ephesus and then uh, in 22 and 23, Luke covers about 1,500 miles of travel just in two verses. He gives us that 30,000 foot flyover where he's just like, uh, yeah, he landed at Caesarea. He went up and greeted the church. That's probably Jerusalem. There's no other place that's just labeled as the church at this point. And then he went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. So he's just, he's just summing that up for us. This is the end of his second missionary journey, and it's even the beginning of his third missionary journey where he's not going to take us. He went to Iconium. He went to Lystra. He went to Berea. That's places that he's been three or four times by now, so we just get it summed up. Luke flies over, but then he comes down, all the way down to the ground here, where he says, now there was a Jew named Apollos. And that's interesting, because Apollos shows up in Ephesus right after Paul leaves. So this is Luke's next kind of teaching moment, where he's like, now there's a guy here, and we need to talk about him, because it's we spent six verses talking about Paul traveling a couple thousand miles. We're fixing, we're fixing to spend four verses, almost just as many, talking about this dude and a conversation that he has. And so we're introduced to Apollos. And, and the first thing that he says is that he's a native of Alexandria. And that's important. It's important for how Apollos is actually described. Alexandria is a center of learning. It is a center of debate and scholarship. About 50 years before this, uh, Julius Caesar accidentally burns down the Library of Alexandria. The Library of Alexandria was the largest collection of ancient knowledge that the world has seen at that point. So vast, in fact, that they said the burning of that library set the, set, uh, the world back about 100 years. We lost about 100 years of knowledge with the burning of this library. So Alexandria is, is a place where people are proud of knowledge. They, they are, they debate one another, they are skilled, and it doesn't uh, surprise us then with how Luke continues to, 
to describe Apollos, it says that uh, he was an eloquent man. He was competent in the scripture, and he had been instructed in the ways of the Lord. That's not surprising for someone who comes from a place that's like, I don't know, let's just say like a Harvard equivalent, where it's like, yeah, this dude just grew up in Cambridge, or he, he grew up um, overseas learning uh, from these from Oxford and these uh, other universities that are well respected, it, it's not a surprise that he is eloquent, that he is competent, that he has learned. And so what's interesting is as Paul leaves Ephesus, the Lord brings someone into Ephesus. And we get a little glimpse here, a small glimpse of the Lord just ultimately moving people around to accomplish uh, his sovereign will. It's also interesting that in some key ways, Apollos is very different than Paul. Paul himself will tell you, I don't come with eloquent speech. It always says that he speaks very plainly. He doesn't have an elaborate argument. He's not there to debate. He's just there to share the gospel, what Jesus has done in his life, and continue on. But Apollos, he is those things. He has elaborate argumentation. He's very persuasive. He knows these arguments. He will debate you openly. And that's, that's not an issue for him. And also says that he was instructed in the ways of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. So not only is he eloquent, not only can he argue well, not only is he persuasive, he's competent, and also he's fervent in spirit. In the Greek, this is a this is a, this is a lot stronger than it sounds in the uh, in the English. It's, it says almost as though he was possessed by the Holy Spirit, gifted extremely by the Holy Spirit, and we we start to see that unfold as we really get into the meat of who Apollos is and why Luke has zoomed down and decided to give him uh, this room here. And it says though he only knew the baptism of John. Well, that's interesting. He only knows the baptism of John. What is he missing? He's missing the baptism of Jesus, which is a very big deal. But he's still persuading people. He's still teaching things accurately, though he doesn't know about the baptism in Jesus' name that Jesus commanded in the Great Commission. Matthew chapter 28, he doesn't know that. Which means he, doesn't also, he also doesn't know about the pouring out of the Holy Spirit at the beginning of Acts. And we know for sure he doesn't know about that because Paul comes back to Ephesus in chapter 19 and he encounters a group of Christians and he tells them about the Holy Spirit. And they were like, wow, no one's ever told us about that before. That's probably the people here that Apollos is teaching. They don't know about the Holy Spirit. They know about the teachings of Jesus. They know about the teachings of John that, that foretold of Jesus' coming. They know about Jesus' life but they're missing his death. They're missing his resurrection. They're missing the great, uh, the great commandment. They're missing uh, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. They're missing a whole lot. But that doesn't stop Apollos. His theology is, is deficient. His, his theology has gaps in it. He doesn't understand it all, but he's still fervent. He's still zealous. He's still debating I think what that means is something that's going to make about half of us uncomfortable and half of us excited. Don't let your theology stand in the way of your zeal. 
Don't let the fact that you don't understand it all stand in the way of you being fervent, of you being learned, of you being eloquent, of you being competent. Some of y'all, that makes you uncomfortable. Right? That, that makes me uncomfortable. It, it, it's weird for, even, for me to even make that point as someone who, who's, who's, who's trying to learn as much theology as I can. But what we see here is that if he stood back and said, I, I just don't understand it all. Well, none of us do. I have gaps of, of, of understanding where I don't think I have all the pieces. None of us do. But he's still fervent, right? He's still in the synagogues. He's still debating. And that's, one, that's the first thing that we can take from Apollos in here. And so he continues on. And it says, though he only knew the baptism of John, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. Now, he has competent knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures. And that's probably what they're debating in, in the synagogues. They're not debating the New Testament because it doesn't exist. They're debating, you know, what Isaiah meant in, the, in, a, uh, in chapter 53. They're, they're debating what the, what the church, uh, what the patriarchs were talking about. Who, who's the next Moses? Who's the next King David? They're the things that he's been, and he's continually pointing to Jesus through these things. And it says, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and they explained to him the way of God more accurately. Priscilla and Aquila, obviously, they learned under Paul. They have a more complete theology than, uh, than Apollos does at this point. And what happens, and I don't want to skip over this to get to the next point, it says that they took him aside. And it says that they both taught him. That's, that's a very small detail that's easy to miss, but in our, in our Facebook-driven keyboard warrior type society that we have right now, we don't normally take people aside. Instead, we blast them. You're up there and you're, and you're trying to put out Christian uh, content on Facebook, but you're missing the baptism of Jesus. You are not being taken aside. You are going to get openly blasted as a heretic. But that's not what Priscilla and Aquila did. They didn't stand up in the synagogue and say, this dude only has a half gospel. Don't listen to him. He doesn't know what he's talking about. They took him aside to see if he was teachable. To see if he really understood what was going on. And the second very small uh, detail here is it says that they both taught him. This is a well-respected man in a very patriarchal society. He is taken aside by a husband and a wife. And he was taught. He, he was told, your, your theology is missing some things. You need more education in these things. And he was told that by a woman. The Bible consistently puts women in these situations where they, they, are, they are used powerfully for the kingdom of God. And this is one of them. Timothy wasn't written yet, but nobody jumped up and said, oh, no, hold on, hold on. Women can't teach men. Don't you read your Bible? None of that happened. Priscilla, I'm sure, powerfully led Apollos and said, listen, there's these truths that you're missing. Listen to the complete story. Know that it's a more complete story. That it's a better story. We can learn a lot from that, right? To take people aside as opposed to, as opposed to putting them on blast for being wrong. To, 
to try to maybe do life with them a little bit, not as a catchphrase, but as, as real, instead of being critical of that person over there that you know is maybe not doing everything they're supposed to be doing, try to befriend them, start a relationship with them, and lead them in a more positive direction. But that's difficult, right? Because that takes time. Quite frankly, it just feels good to meet in small groups and blast people. It gratifies our sin nature. We like doing that. I like seeing people get just roasted on Facebook. Right? That's not what happened here. And thankfully, that's not what happened. But it also leads to the counterpoint of my first. Don't let your zeal stand in the way of your theology. Your theology is important. Everyone in this room is a theologian. The only question is whether or not we're good ones or bad ones. Everyone in here has a belief system about God. That is theology, literally the study of God. No matter where you are, maybe you're skeptical. You don't think any of this is real. You came here because someone finally pestered you enough to show up. Or you're just curious, right? You have a theology. It may be deficient. It may, be, it may have gaps. You may have uh, a misunderstanding of what it means to be a Christian or what we teach in this room or what we, what we try to get others to do. You may be someone with advanced degrees who's, who has studied this extensively, had these argumentations, lived in a place like Alexandria where scholarship and debate reigned. But we all have a theology. And, and what you believe about God, we don't realize this, determines all other things about your life. If you believe that God is this cosmic policeman who's just, who's just walking around waiting for you to mess up so he, can, so he can get you on the head, so he can get you in trouble, and, and that's just the kind of guy God is. He's no fun. He shuts down all the things that are fun, all the fun things, they're all sin, but all, all the not fun things, those are the things I want you to do, and I'm just waiting for you to mess up. That's going to affect the way that you see authority. That's going to affect the way that you see you see your husband or your wife. It's going to affect the way that you interact with other people. Your theology is played out day by day, whether you think that you have a theology or when you know what your theology is, because your theology is incredibly important for your day-to-day -day life. And that's where I feel more comfortable, right? Let, let my zeal be tempered by my theology because my theology is kind of like uh, tells me to kind of like chill. God's in control and he'll, he'll pretty much do what he wants anyway. But think about this. Scripture itself is, is described as the sharpest two-edged sword. If you give the sharpest war weapon to ever exist to someone who has no control, no temper whatsoever, if you, if you if your zeal is untempered by a theology of any kind, and giving that sword to that person would be like giving a sword to a madman. He can cause untold damage. He has no parameters in which to operate, right? But at the same time, to have the sharpest sword to ever, to ever exist and merely worship the sword instead of its ability to do work, then what we do is we have, we have this incredible war weapon, and instead of using it, to accomplish things, we instead lay it on the ground and worship it. Both of them don't work. 
to have a theology with no zeal is cold, dead, and useless. To have zeal without theology makes you a madman that only causes havoc and damage. Luckily, through the efforts of Priscilla and Aquila, and then and ultimately uh, the Spirit of God, Apollos is going to be a man that has both. And it says that they took him aside and he explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross the Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. He powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And so he says, hey guys, I appreciate you, you taking me aside and teaching me these things, giving me the full story, allowing me to more fully understand what's going on. And it says that he wished to go to uh, Achaia. Read Corinth there. Achaia was the district that Corinth was in. Corinth was the main city. And what's, what's, what's uh, I don't want to say funny, but what's interesting there is we get to further see God moving his chess pieces around the world, right? Because he removed... Uh, he removed Paul from Corinth to Ephesus back to Antioch. And then he moves Apollo to Ephesus back to Corinth. And he's, he's retracing Paul's steps. So as one interesting kind of, uh, kind of mover of ministry leaves a city, another one arrives. And I can't help but imagine that happens probably thousands of times throughout this whole time period of, uh, in the ancient world where God is just constantly moving pieces around, accomplishing His will. But we get to see a small glimpse of it here. And Priscilla and Aquila, they, they write a letter for the, the disciples in Corinth to openly welcome Apollos. Priscilla and Aquila are from Corinth. They studied under Paul in Corinth for years. So that letter would hold some weight. And so when he gets there, he helps greatly. He helps greatly with those who by grace have believed. I can't criticize Luke in any way, but that's an interesting use of words. He helped those who by grace have believed. And then right at the very end here, he says that, he, that uh, Apollos showed in public from the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. <coughs> two lines at the end of this story, Luke works in a full gospel. He works in the ability or, or the way by which you believe. It is, it is by grace that you believe. So he goes in there and he doesn't just say he helps the disciples or he helps those the Christians. He said he helps those who through, who through grace have believed. And then he proclaims Jesus as the Christ. So at the tail end here, what do we get? We get a gospel presentation by Luke. Right? Here's, here's Apollos. He's doing some things. He needs to be corrected. Gets corrected. Things are going well. Now here's the gospel. Now, here's the way to believe. You believe by grace through faith, right? It's not by your own works. It's not by your own doing. Your sin has separated you from God. By grace, you can be reunited with Him. And it's, and it's by grace that you have believed. Believed in who? In Jesus, the Christ. Jesus, the God-made man, the incarnate. The one who has died on the cross. He, this, is, this is the supplement information, right, that Apollos was, was, was missing in, right above this. That Jesus has lived, he has died, he has been resurrected, 
And through that, you can be reconciled to God, for he is the Christ. And he shows that from these Old Testament scriptures and these public debates with the Jews. And we know from Paul's teaching in his letter to the Corinthians that Apollos starts to gain a following in Corinth. Matter of fact, Paul has to come back and he has to, he has to correct them. You ever heard the scripture, some say I'm of Apollos, some say I'm of Paul. There's divisions being caused in Corinth because Apollos is down there and he's standing up for the gospel. He has to come back and say, yeah, it was, it was I who tilled the ground, it was Apollos who watered, but it was God who gave the growth. So Paul has to come back and he has to reorient everyone's, everyone's focus back to God, not to the work of his servants. And here, Luke is constantly pointing us to that as well. He doesn't sing the praises of Apollos and his, and his learnedness and his, his ability to, to debate. He points back to Jesus the Christ. Point back to Him, right? But there's still more that we can learn from this text. The whole, the whole flow of the text is, 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 uh, is very particular. We have someone who, who is... What an what old professor would say, often wrong but never in doubt. A, a, a very bold speaker who's, who's missing some stuff. He, he finds community with Priscilla and Aquila. He gets, he gets those issues corrected and he gets back out there. His boldness isn't gone. His pride isn't hurt that he had to be corrected. And he gets back out there. This text flows in, in a model of sorts of what our lives should look like. This is what the Christian life is. Be fervent. Be possessed by the Spirit. Go out there. Say things. Teach. Be okay with failure and with being wrong. Why? Because you should have a community that you that rein you in, that bring you in and, and say, Joey, there's, there's a lot of good out there that, that's being done, but there's some issues too. We need to work on that. There's some sin that maybe you don't see. There's some knowledge that maybe is incomplete. There's some, there's some issues here, brother. Let me teach you more accurately the things of God. And then what happens? We get back out there. That boldness is still there. We're still out there defending the faith, right? The Bible tells us to be ready at all times to give a defense of our faith. Maybe, maybe your defense isn't, isn't full of 13-syllable words that no one understands until you break it down, right? Maybe your defense isn't, isn't full of exact Scripture references. Maybe it's full of, I think the Bible says, that's, 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 that's okay, don't let your zeal get in the way, or don't let your theology get in the way of your, of your zeal, right? We see that. Your, your small group, your marriage, your friendships, they should be equipping you with those things so that you move away from, I think the Bible says to, well, Paul says, well, I think Corinthians says, okay, look, 1 Corinthians 3, 6, it says this, that's a progress. That's a progress that, that as we see, Apollos is having to move through, that all of us have to move through. These are the things that should be happening in your small groups that you meet with every week, right? These are the things that should be happening in your friendships and your marriages. It's okay that you don't know it all. At the same time, remember, don't let 
your zeal stand in the way, or, or, or don't let your theology stand in the way of your zeal, or whichever way is correct. <laughs> <laughs> don't let the fact that you're zealous mean that you don't need to understand the things of God. I hear too many times, why, do, why would I go to a seminary and study? I have the Spirit. You do. And what a great, powerful gift that is. And He allows you to understand. And I'm not saying everybody needs to go off and get a degree, but everyone needs to seek to understand. Because when you go out and you tell somebody that Jesus died in your place on the cross and He reconciles you to God, guess what? That's theology. You're doing theology. You need it. You need to understand God more accurately. You need to understand the hard questions. Because somebody, I promise you, they've Googled problems with Christianity. And Google only reports the hardest possible questions to answer. So when you go, hey, I'm a Christian. Oh, yeah? How can God be sovereign man be responsible for sin? Well, geez, man. I don't know. It just happens that way. Right? That's what... That's what people who, who are critical of Christianity, they're not armed with the easiest questions that are answered by a verse. They're armed with the most difficult questions a Christian can possibly answer. Study. Grow in your awe of God and His infinite knowledge. Be okay with the fact that you don't know everything. Because guess what? No one else does. Don't be the guy who says you don't need scripture. You don't need theology. But also, don't be the guy who says I don't need zeal. I don't need to be out there. Neither one of those are helpful. Be tempered by both. By way of your friends, as shine, as iron sharpens iron, so is a, so is a friend sharpens a friend. That is a violent description. When iron comes in contact with iron to sharpen it, it throws sparks. It creates dense. In your small groups, there will be issues. There will be weeks where you don't want to meet. There will be people that you, you are trying to do life with that you don't even like. <laughs> That's going to happen. It happens every day. Don't bail on that. Stay in there. Take those hints. Hits and hints. Allow yourself to be sharpened as you sharpen others. Allow yourself to be taken aside and explained more accurately the things of God.